Refugee crises are not a new phenomenon to the European continent, or to the world at large for that matter, in recent years. However, the displacement of refugees created by the Russian invasion of Ukraine has ousted people from the country at a scale and speed not seen since World War II. According to statistics from the United Nations, more than 3.6 million Ukrainians have fled the country, with more than 2 million of those people going to Poland. Similarly, half of all Ukrainian children have been displaced since Russia's attack began on February 24th. Therefore, with this previously unimaginable crisis at hand, we have to ask the question of how this crisis is being handled currently and how it could possibly pan out in the future. From Seton Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students covering the domestic situation in Ukraine today is Abby now. Hi, Abby. Hello, how are you? I'm good. And focusing on the international aspect today is Annie Hebel. Hi, Annie. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. All right, guys, let's get into first the background of this crisis itself. What has been the general reaction and response of European nations to the refugees so far? And feel free, either of you, to jump in. So I can get us started with this. So generally, the response of European nations has been extremely accepting of the refugees, which, as I'm sure we'll get into later, is a pretty stark cry from a lot of the different refugee crises that have happened in the past few years. There's been a really strong support from the EU and from NATO, and there's a lot of reasons behind this that I'm sure we'll dive into later. All right. Off of that point, which nations have been most affected by this crisis? Because I mentioned Poland in the intro, but for like our listeners, like which countries are the main ones taking in the refugees at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So Poland, as you mentioned in the intro, is the most affected country. They've taken the most refugees by far. Um, as of today, when we're recording this, it's about 2.3 million. Romania is next with 609,000. Moldova took about 385,000. Hungary took about 365,000, and Slovakia has a little bit over 280,000. So those are the main countries that are taking refugees. They're the border countries directly surrounding Ukraine. But there has also been some bleeding more into the rest of Europe and into other states. Israel's taken some refugees. The United States has taken some refugees. There's, um, it's really just kind of becoming more of a global phenomenon as more and more people start to flee from the country. I see. So it's becoming much greater than just a European problem to handle the refugees of incoming this. How has the conflict in Ukraine itself shaped these refugee flows of like uh, the creation of like humanitarian corridors and things such as that with the conflict going? Yeah, so Ukraine and Russia have had negotiations to set up humanitarian corridors, especially with some going to Russia. When they were first established, uh, Russia had abused them and used them for their military instead. And they're trying to reestablish them now, but Ukraine is being very iffy about it and unwilling to do it because they don't want the same situation to repeat. But there are some set up now, and they seem to be working fairly well. I see. A lot of the nations that have been taking in refugees at the moment are nations a part of either NATO or the European Union. So what has been the response by these organizations to um, handle them? 
The EU has granted Ukrainians who flee the war a blanket right to stay and work throughout the 27 member nations for up to three years. NATO has sent over some battle groups uh, to bordering countries, but they're not trying to get involved themselves in order to avoid a World War III. I don't know if you have anything else to add. Yeah, absolutely. So EU, like, um, like Abby said, has extended temporary protective status to Ukrainian citizens. And NATO has, while they have not taken a significant, they're not playing a significant role in the crisis, as in they're not sending troops directly to NATO state, or to, sorry, to Ukraine, they are sending troops to other border NATO states to kind of help uh, deter Russia from going any further. And they're also providing all sorts of humanitarian aid to Ukraine. So they are taking a stance, but they're taking a very nonviolent stance in the hopes of not accelerating the conflict any any further. However, there have been some critiques and arguments from global leaders and especially from humanitarian groups that neither is doing enough and that they haven't made a very direct stance, particularly NATO. There are some very um, real feelings in Ukraine that NATO has not responded enough and that they haven't sent a ton of military aid to Ukraine. So while the response has been significant and that it's been a very strong outpouring of support for Ukraine, a lot of people feel that it could go further. I see. And it's also not the first time that this happened. We'll get into uh, previous crises later, especially with the role in 2015 with the Syrian refugees. But I also want to focus on the effects of the displacement on specifically the Ukrainian refugees itself, guys. So first, has there been any like cultural or social impacts on the refugees that they're facing right now? Yeah. So with Ukraines fleeing into Poland, it's a completely different environment for them. So you have to think that these people have established their lives. They have careers that they've built up for themselves. And now they just have to pick everything up and leave. And where to go is a big decision for them. And where they're deciding to go is based on their belief of how long the war will last. So if they think the war will be over soon, they're staying in local areas, in um, uh, many hotel places, and people have opened their houses for free. So they're just staying there, hoping that it blows over soon. And then for the people that feel like the war is going to drag out, they're just trying to get away as far as possible. I see. Is part of that, has been there more acceptance of the, like, the Ukrainian refugees because they face a similar culture to the West? In some ways, that is definitely true. And I think we definitely can see this in comparison to past crises, specifically looking at the 2015 uh, Syrian refugee crisis. So generally, Ukrainians are seen as more European and more familiar than other refugees of past crises. Um, They're white and Christian, and so Europeans feel a very strong connection in a lot of cases to these refugees, more so than any other um, refugees that have happened in past crises. Thinking to Syria, um, you know, Syria is in Asia, and it's it's in the Middle East, and it had a lot of Muslim residents who were fleeing, and so you have that religious and those cultural differences that are really significant. The other thing that really plays into this is the fact that Ukraine is a post-Soviet state, and there's most of the border countries who are accepting the refugees are also post-Soviet states. And so you have this kind of mutual understanding. Putin is seen as a common enemy by all of the EU. There's fears that if a strong stance isn't taken against Putin, that that, that Russia will take that and go further and proceed even further into Europe. So you have kind of a a, a multitude of factors that are really impacting this, this acceptance. I see. I want to go specifically to one factor that I don't think was mentioned, Eddie, of like, has there been, and tossing this question to you, Abby, as well, has there been difficulties with language barriers of like Ukrainians that either speak Ukrainian or Russian to a certain extent? Have they been feeling those effects or difficulties? 
They absolutely have been. So as I mentioned earlier, these people have built their entire careers and they're able to do it in the language that they know. So while they may have all the experience and the qualities to fit a job that would allow them to restart themselves sooner rather than later, what makes it difficult for them to get those jobs is the language barrier. So since they can't communicate properly, it's stopping them and from being able to rebuild their life faster than they could. I see. Kind of diving deeper into this of this, has there been like environmental impacts of the displaced refugees of what kind of will these countries that have accepted these refugees, especially for the short term as the war has only gone on for a shorter period of time, will they be able to handle long term the amount of refugees in their country currently? So there you have a huge influx in the population so that means you have to increase food supply and everything else included that's not something that's done overnight it's done through time so there there will be shortages of food and supplies and where to stay which uh, is not an easy thing for a country to handle but through the time they'll be able to adjust to the population and hopefully work with it i see one thing i think we haven't touched on yet is that we've talked about ukrainian refugees fleeing into Western Europe or other European countries, but part of the creation of these humanitarian corridors we talked about is that some Ukrainian refugees have fled into Russia itself. I'd like to ask you both about like the prospects of that, of what could go on with that. So there's many different scenarios where people would flee into Russia. Um, the first one was that there could be people that um, have a strong sense of nationalism for Russia, so they'd want to flee there. Another reason is that it could be a safe option. So since there is the corridors, it's easy and safe to get there, which, of course, if you have a family, that's the ideal situation you want. And then also refugees have expressed concern of Russia going and trying to find them after the war is over. So then in a way not to live in fear, they may find it simpler to just go into Russia. To put some statistics on it, um, Russia has currently accepted about 275,000 refugees from Ukraine. So there are definitely some signs that this number will continue to increase rather than decrease. Um, A lot of these um, refugees as well have been coming from regions that are more known to be pro-Russian, thinking the Donbass region. So this definitely plays a factor. I think, like Abby was saying, the ideological um, aspect of it is huge. The idea of people who are more sympathetic to the Russian cause will flee more towards Russia. But there is a very strong anti-Russian sentiment in Ukraine, as is to be expected, and so that is definitely plays a factor into this. I see. Moving, we've already kind of touched on this a little bit, of like the current crisis versus the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, one thing that I want to touch on, because you mentioned it earlier, Abby, of like safer corridors for people to flee of. Is there a difference between these crises and the danger of the journey for migrants? There absolutely is a very significant difference. So I think one of the biggest differences is that a lot of these, a lot of the paths that Ukrainians are taking, there are these clear humanitarian um, channels. They're not obviously the most safe option, but these are land borders we're talking about. These are people moving into accepted countries, which are two very significant factors that you didn't really have in 2015. So in the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis, just to give a little bit of background, it was mostly people from the Middle East fleeing, mostly people from Syria and Afghanistan fleeing conflict and, you know, dictatorial governments. And so the biggest difference is that these people were fleeing largely through the Mediterranean, which was a very, very perilous journey. Um, There was a lot of illegal trafficking of individuals and paying of smugglers. And so it was a lot of illegal activity because there were really, really 
staunch anti-immigrant policies, which I'm sure we'll get into, put in place by the EU. And so you had people making these journeys through the Mediterranean via boat. There were several cases where there were really, really horrible accidents and hundreds of migrants would die at a time. Some very um, graphic imagery, which I'm sure many of our listeners will remember from those accidents of children and, and families being, you know, washed up on beaches. So, yeah, that's definitely a very significant difference between the few. I think we already touched on it earlier, guys, but if you have anything to add on to of, like, acceptance of Ukrainian refugees versus the Syrian refugees of, like, uh, difference of, like, opening the borders, as Annie said, uh, versus the very much strict policies put in place. I think another really significant um, thing to look at in this is the idea of media coverage. Um, As we've mentioned, most of Europe is in favor of Ukraine in this crisis, and so there has been a very strong support a very strong level of support throughout Western media for Ukraine and for accepting Ukrainian refugees. I think a big way you see this is in the the language that's used. Ukrainians are labeled as refugees, whereas Syrians were often labeled as migrants, which has kind of a very different connotation to it. There was a lot of anti-Islamic media that came out around this time and a lot of um, just very anti-Syrian rhetoric that was a really, really big impact. And I think this difference of race, which I'm sure we can get into as well, was a really, really big difference. I think another really thing, a really important thing to remember is that in the middle of the 2015 crisis was the Paris terrorist attacks, um, which led to a lot of increased Islamophobia and increased a lot of public discussion about migration in a very negative way. Um, And just some background into those, if people don't remember, it was a series of Islamic terrorist attacks across Paris on November 13th that led to a total of 137 deaths. So this is another very significant factor. I do want to dive deeper into like the difference of identities and race playing into a role because I think the connotation is important. So do you have anything to add on that, Abby? Uh, For identities, I do. So for Syrian refugees, higher perceived ethnic discrimination was found to be associated with poor mental and physical health but not for respondents who derived a sense of efficiency from Syrian identities. Higher Syrian identification was associated with lower depression and anxiety, but more strongly for refugees who derived a sense of belonging and continuity from their Syrian identities. I think another thing, too, that's important to mention is the idea that a lot of the people who are fleeing from Ukraine are women and children. Um, There's a, a mandate in Ukraine that men from 18 to 60 are required to stay in Ukraine to fight. Um, as as for their military, whereas for the Syrian refugee crisis, it was a lot of men fleeing, looking to find work to support their families, to gain visas to eventually bring their families. So this also has a significant factor. While there were obviously women and children fleeing from Syria as well, um, this is a pretty stark difference that's important to note. I think think that's true, and I think it's also the difference of, we can get into that a little bit later, of the difference between of interstate conflict of like a war in Europe between Russia, a state fleeing, whereas a lot of the Syrian refugees were fleeing from dictatorial governments and uh, extremists and violence committed there. One thing I also want to ask is the difference in the border states currently of like Poland and Romania being the ones accepting the most migrants right now versus Greece uh, in the previous crisis. Does that have any impact on the comparison between the two? Yeah, they definitely do. So Poland and Romania have been open with their borders and they have made it very simple to enter their territory. An example of that is documentation to come in. They're not requiring as much as they were in the past before this crisis started. While Greece used inhumane measures that violate the EU and international law, some examples of this are security forces using tear gas and repelling dinghies. The government has also suspended the registration of asylum claims and said it would 
deport anyone who enters irregularly without examining their cases. Yeah, this is definitely true. I think um, at least five states built really, really long fences to deter the influx of migration in 2015. Um, there were a, a huge increase in migrant camps to hold these refugees, which had very inhumane conditions, as Abby touched into. And there was really just, there had to be a really, really strong fight to get Europe to accept these refugees. As of 20, 2022, there are about 2 million Syrian refugees who have, who have successfully gained asylum across Europe. But the immediacy is the really significant difference in this, in that it took a very long time to get to this point. We're seven years post-conflict in terms of the Syrian refugee crisis. So... It's it, the immediacy is a huge difference. I see. Is the international unity and support for Ukrainian refugees we've talked about of uh, the support and difference can, in contrast, but is the current support surprising or like the international unity? For me personally, I don't think it was. If you, you can. Yeah, no, on. I definitely agree. I don't think it was surprising at all. I think like we've talked about the strength of the support for Ukraine because of who the aggressor is has been a really, really big impact. The similarity of, you know, ethnicity, of ideology, of understanding between Ukrainian refugees and most of the countries where they're fleeing is a really big difference. So another part of why I wasn't surprised was because the NATO borders Ukra most of Ukraine, and NATO is against Russia's type of government. So, of course, people in Ukraine are trying to stand for their democracy, and of course NATO is going to go ahead and back that up as much as they're able to without starting World War III. I see. I also wanted to ask, because even there's a difference between of 2022 right now to 2015, of potential impacts of technology on this current crisis, of being able to people see uh, these refugees moving in from different places. Yeah, I think technology plays a huge impact. We've already seen a lot of um, social media has been a huge driving factor. Thinking like a big thing that has been going around on Instagram is the idea of people finding ways to individually support Ukrainians by like booking Airbnbs and then not going to the Airbnbs, obviously, but finding that way to directly give funding to the Ukrainian people. Um, and so technology has been playing a huge role in that way and just in connecting people, in allowing Ukrainians to find support from other Ukrainians, from people in border countries. Social media has been huge in that way. And just in generally in connecting people, in raising awareness of this, like I talked about a little bit earlier, media has been a lot more sympathetic to Ukraine, which has been a really, really significant factor in the acceptance of these refugees as well. Do you have anything you want to add on, on that, Abby? No, just I, I also think that TikTok has been a app that's also been promoting it, uh, especially I know when I'm just scrolling through, I'll be able to see protests or I'll see refugees fleeing and it makes it more personal for me, which of course would make me sympathize with them more and want to help. I see. I, I kind of want to ask a twofold question of you both and of asking like, is the unity of the West going to continue? But I think a lot of that hinges on is the United States' reaction to the current crisis. So whichever one of you want to start with that, go ahead. Yeah, so it's difficult to say whether the unity of the West is going to continue. I think it's rare that we see the West so unified, especially as it's been so divisive in the past few years. I think as long as Russia is still seen as a threat, there's going to be unity against Russia and against Russian aggression. And so as long as that continues, I think unity of the West will continue. But how long that will be, continue to be the case is hard to say. And I think the U.S. reaction to this refugee crisis in comparison to other refugee crises has been a really huge impact as well. They've already stated that they're accepting 100,000 refugees. This soon into the crisis is a really significant 
factor, especially compared to the Syrian refugee crisis of 2015 when it took them a lot longer to react. Absolutely. And Biden has also uh, said that he's providing more one billion in humanitarian assistance, um, as well as uh, 320 million in uh, bolster democracy and human rights in Ukraine and neighboring nations. And Biden's goal through that is to just make sure that Poland and Romania or Germany feel like they are not dealing with this by themselves. I see. One thing that I also want to talk about is the nature of the conflict in Ukraine as it affects of this you will continue to see more refugee flows as it seems the war has settled down into attritional siege warfare. So do you think there will be any like surge in populist or anti-immigrant sentiment in European politics as there was with the last crisis, guys? Or as we've talked about, the differences in identities and more unity displayed in support of these refugees means that'll be tampered down or there won't be. So I think it's really going to depend on how far Russia goes and how long this conflict lasts. I think Definitely a lot of what we're seeing right now is very reactionary in terms of Russia is seen as a very immediate aggressor um, and the conflict is still extremely fresh. I mean, it's been going on for like less than a month. And so I think right now there's still a huge show of immediate support. I think um, a lot of seeing if if a surge in anti-immigrant sentiment will continue will largely depend on A, how the assimilation, I say that in quotes, of refugees goes in terms of whether they're able to effectively adjust to society in new lo- in, in new country in new countries or whether it'll be a more rough transition um, and then also depending on how long the conflict lasts the longer the conflict lasts the more wary people will grow which i think will play a significant role in this acceptance all right i think that's that's a good point guys and i just want to kind of sum up all our previous thoughts in the conversation of like uh, i'll just pose the question of how do you see how do you both see this crisis playing out in the long term for me the way i see it is russia will i feel like eventually end up taking ukraine uh and then through that the refugees would not want to come back meaning that everyone would stay put where there are they'll try to travel to a place where there wouldn't be as much of a language barrier but unfortunately it's difficult to see russia not taking over ukraine especially now that Putin has so many war crimes going against him that he wouldn't want to go to trial for that, that he'll just keep pushing. Personally, I kind of have a little bit of a different view on it. I personally don't think that Russia will take Ukraine, or if they do, I think that the reaction against it will be really strong. I think we've already seen how strong the reaction is um, against against Russian aggression, and I think that if it was to go as far as Russia was to take Kiev and to take the whole country then you would have to see a response because I think that that would lead to much more pertinent fears of how far Russia would go, would continue to go. I think you would see um, a lot of, you know, certainly deference warfare of of putting troops in more in Poland and Romania and, and really loading troops in those NATO ally states. And I think that if Russia is able to take Ukraine, it's difficult to see them stopping. And so... I think that will just lead to a further conflict. And so, honestly, I don't see them taking all of Ukraine. At this time, they're really just kind of staying in the eastern part of Ukraine, and so I think that they'll kind of stay there. If they're not able to be driven out, then we can see, but, yeah. I mean, we've already touched on it a little bit. I think that's a really good point, Annie. Of We've already touched on a little bit of the, e- the European Union and Europe doing a better job, at least, of handling this current refugee crisis. Do you think that they will continue to do so 
or is this going to eventually uh, if this conflict drags on if different things will there be less support for these refugees right now um, so I believe they're doing a better, better job of handling this, and I believe that the support will be continued. They have already offered more help that they have in the past, which is very promising. Not to mention most of social media is on Ukraine's side, so they will have the support needed to make sure the EU and Europe stays focused on them. Yeah, I think I definitely agree. I mean, it, it's almost undeniable that they've been doing a better job, and I really hope that it stays this way. I think time will really only tell as the can conflict continues to drag on, but I have a lot of hope because I think that this immediate reaction has shown that it is possible to have a positive response and be really effective. Which is a good development for the whole world, I think, in general. Absolutely. This has been a great discussion. Annie, Abby, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Thomas Johnson. Hey, Thomas. Hey, Drew. So what headlines do you have for us this week? While in Israel, two police were killed by Israeli Arab gunmen, Peru's President Castillo braces for imminent impeachment vote, and Novaya Gazeta, the last independent newspaper in Russia, falls silent. Some very important topics to cover. Let's start with the Israeli story. On Tuesday, two Israeli border police officers were killed in Hadera, Israel, by two Israeli Arab gunmen. The Islamic State, a militant terrorist organization, has claimed responsibility for the attack. This is the second time within days that the Israeli Arabs were connected to the Islamic State have carried out an attack in Israel. Due to fears of further attacks, Israel has deployed forces to the West Bank and put all police forces on high. Definitely some tensions to be aware of in the coming weeks. And you mentioned Peruvian President Castillo? President Castillo is currently facing impeachment just eight months after his election due to corruption allegations. He has denied the accusations, blaming them on economic groups seeking a coup to depose the government. This may not be surprising to many because every Peruvian president within the past 36 years has been entangled in corruption allegations. An unfortunate and perhaps unsurprising development. And your last headline was about a Russian newspaper? Yes, Novaya Gazeta, the last independent newspaper in Russia, has suspended its publishing operations until the end of the war between Russia and Ukraine. This comes after a second warning from Vraskomnadzor, a Russian tech and communications regulator. Novaya Gazeta had been accurately reporting on the war in Ukraine and happenings in Russia, while words like war, invasion, and attack are banned by new censorship laws. In addition, publishing information that discredits the military has been criminalized in Russia. Since the invasion, Russia has blocked dozens of independent media outlets to unite the nation and persuade Russians that the invasion intent was to destroy Nazis and protect Russia. Thank you very much for coming on, Thomas. And now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Raculia, and of course your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 WSOU. Until next time, thank you.